Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The Postal Service ran into two major payroll hangups in the last few months. The incidents held up paychecks for tens of thousands of rural carriers. Now the union representing the carriers is calling for USPS to pay penalties should the problems arise again. And for good measure, the union demands that USPS modernize the payroll system itself. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman joins me with the latest. So give us a quick review of what happened here. It sounds serious, Jory. Yeah, it's just been one of these problems that just snowballs from the initial incident. USPS in early September experienced a pretty substantial programming issue with its payroll system, and that caused about 52,000 rural letter carriers to either miss the regular paycheck or receive a partial paycheck for the pay period that ended on September 1st. And as a temporary workaround, what USPS had proposed was for carriers in this predicament that were affected by this issue, they were going to offer them what they called a salary advance, basically a money order that was going to be roughly 65% of their gross pay. So it would estimate roughly what they would be getting in that paycheck anyway. Now, there wasn't 100% uptake of impacted carriers getting those salary advances for a number of reasons. I've spoken to carriers that said that their post offices didn't offer them as an option. And other people said that they've uh, been through this situation before and the pay was remedied very quickly. And so they didn't bother with this and they were just going to wait for their paycheck. A whole bunch of things happened here. But what we know for certain is that it did take USPS, in some cases, one pay period, two pay periods, multiple pay periods to get this fixed and make sure that rural carriers got the back pay that they were entitled to. This happened again just before Thanksgiving, where the week of that holiday, a smaller incident, 2,200 employees were in the same boat and were, once again, not going to get this paycheck on time. And what about back pay? Was the Postal Service able to get that to them in a reasonable amount of time? Well, it did take, uh, in some cases, multiple pay periods for them to fully rectify the issue. One other downstream issue of all of this is that for those standard paychecks, a lot of these rural carriers had deductions like for mortgage or rent or things of that nature. And so they incurred, in some cases, some bank penalties because the pay that they got, if they even got any through that money order, created some additional problems and some additional uh, stress for them. And so this got to the point where a number of senators have been keyed into this issue. They complained to USPS about this, and it got to a point where we were the first to exclusively report that the Labor Department is now looking at this as a uh, an issue that its wage and hour division is investigating. Right. As the good book says, you shall not hold the wages of your laborers until the morning. And that's what the Postal Service was doing, probably not on purpose. And so what does the union specifically want now at this point? So at this point, the National Rural Letter Carriers Association is pretty fired up that this is not just a one-off thing, that this is something that has happened now twice at this magnitude. And what they want is they have filed a national grievance on this issue, and they want assurances from the Postal Service that if this kind of thing happens again, rural carriers don't just get the pay that they're entitled to, but what we've heard from the union president, Don Mastin, is that impacted carriers should also get some sort of financial compensation if they're in this boat. If they continue to harm carriers by not paying them correctly and on time, 
then there needs to be a monetary penalty for each instance that occurs. Yeah, liquidated damages maybe, but that's been hard to prove to the courts as we found in some of the shutdown pay interruption cases, these class action suits. And what about the idea of USPS modernizing its legacy payroll system? Sounds like it's not the system, but maybe the programmers working on it. Well, it's really interesting. When I was speaking with Mastin about this, he says every pay period, there is some sort of payroll issue that impacts rural carriers. It's sometimes, you know, a carrier here, a carrier there. It's seldom several thousand or tens of thousands of rural carriers. But he says, no matter what the number is, it's unacceptable if you're that rural carrier and you're just not getting the paycheck that you were owed. And so he says all of this, the big problems, the small problems, it all has to do with a legacy payroll system that USPS really needs to update from his perspective. And so if the union does get this this financial penalty in place here through this national grievance, they're really looking at this as a carrot and stick sort of way that if USPS on its own doesn't modernize the system, that having these penalties in place will incentivize them to modernize it. They need to spend money to update the equipment or the computer system. That money would be better served to do that as opposed to leave it in place and spend the money to pay the carriers for being harmed. So it's an incentive. It's a penalty if you want to look at it that way. And, Jory, just for clarification, a lot of these rural carriers are not full-time employees. They're hourly, and so it's kind of a complicated payroll calculation for each one of them. They're not standard city carriers that are postal employees. And that's an important thing to bring up here, Tom, is that unlike some of the city carriers that are paid by the hour, there's a little bit more complicated math going on here where rural carriers are paid by their routes. And as you point out, sometimes these are relief carriers that are working multiple different routes on any given pay period. And so it does take a little bit of careful notation and uh, working with the data here to make sure that they are getting paid for specific routes on specific days. And what happens now with this national grievance that the union has filed? Well, it is the union's hope that they are able to resolve this amicably with USPS, that it's just those two parties parties involved and that they can reach an agreement that they can both live with. If that's not the case, well, a third party arbitrator would then hear the case and would issue a binding agreement that both parties would have to comply with. And what do we know about how the carriers themselves are holding up under all of this? Well, it's definitely taking a toll on them. This has been a hard job for them the past couple of years. The USPS in general has been short-staffed. You know, they've seen some pretty tough turnover, especially with their pre-career workforce ranks. And what we heard from Mastin is that this is just a piece of the puzzle here, that if this is a job where you have to second guess whether you're going to get your paycheck on time, that's a tough thing for new recruits to hear. And so they're quick to leave hearing that kind of problem is going around. And this is coming, of course, at the time of their year-end peak season. And so all this adds up to be quite a mess. Yeah. Merry Christmas to the people bringing you your mail and presents. Tough time. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. 
Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important, so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing 
what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time. So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so, that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. 
your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're gonna become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. 
And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.